0: All right, well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to The Well here at STSA. Happy that you're joining us here. We are continuing our latest series here at The Well called Fighting Failure, where we are talking all about failure and how failure is a necessary part of success in just about any field of life, and the same is true spiritually. Now, you may be just walking in here off the street and saying to yourself, why in the world are these people talking about failure? And why do they seem so excited to come hear about failure and talk about failure? And why are we going to spend five weeks of our lives talking about how to fail? Well, the answer to that question is very simple. As great as it is to talk about success, what we need to hear about is failure. And I would even go so far as to say what we love to hear about is failure. Because there's something about a good failure story that just makes us feel like I'm not alone. There's hope for me as well. That's why we're all talking about good fail stories. And last week, for those who were here, I shared one of my personal fail stories about how one time I gave a sermon... About the Greek word for joy, and I apparently said a curse word in front of the entire universe. All right, in uh, the Arabic language, I said a word which I didn't know was a curse word, but I found out later it was a curse word, and everyone seemed to really, really delight in my fail story. And so many people said that they enjoyed that story, and they said, "Hey, Father Anthony, kara," and I said, "That's very how are you good. That's how you do it. That's right." So, since y'all enjoyed that story, let me tell you another even bigger fail story. In case you think that I'm the great preacher and I never make mistakes. Once upon a time, the year was 2009, and in 2009, I was giving a sermon. So I was in—I was not in the United States. I was over in, uh, in in England, in a city called Brighton, and I was over there for a couple weeks. And I was asked to give a sermon. I was, you know, praying the liturgy at the church and asked me to give a sermon. No problem. This is what I do. I've done this many, many, many times. And as I was about to give the sermon, the priest made sure that he said, oh, by the way, you need to speak in Arabic. (laughs) I said, no, I I don't speak Arabic. He said, well, they don't understand English. So someone's going to have to bend right here. So I said, okay, I can do this. I got this. How hard can it be? The sermon for the day, the topic for the day, the, the passages in Matthew chapter 6 talk about the Lord's Prayer. So I'm going to speak about the Our Father. And I said, okay, this is easy. And I had one very simple point. One point, and i want to hit this point, And this should be very, very simple. I want to get the point and get out, okay? And this is that whole, like, the Holy Spirit will give you in that hour what you ought to say. And the disciples spoke in tongues, so why not me, okay? So I go out there full of confidence, and I'm going to give a sermon on the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, in Arabic. My main point was this one thing is that when Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer, he didn't say, call me the Father. He said, say, our Father. And my whole point was that Jesus personalized it, and the key is that word, our and he stressed on our father. And he's not just the father, but he's our father. And what that means that I'm his son and that close relationship. And he's not just some entity, but he's like my father. He's my daddy. And I said also when we say the word our, it unites us all together. Because if he's your father and my father, then we're brothers and sisters. And my main point was on the emphasis on the word our. So in Arabic, how you say our father is abana. Lezi, okay. For those who no know Arabic, it's Abana Lezi. So in my mind, this is a simple like copy and paste. You have two words in English, "our father." So I assume that the two words in Arabic, Abana and Lezi, one of them is "our," one of them is "father." <laughs> and I know that Abana, I know that like comes from Ava, like Abuna. I know that's father. So I'm assuming. That lezi means our. Those who are not getting it right now means you don't know what I didn't know is that lezi does not mean our. It means who art. Because in Arabic, they're so efficient with their words, they squeeze four regular words and two Arabic words. So when they say abana lezi, they're saying our father who art. So here I am, the smartest guy in the universe, came from the United States of America, land of the free and home of the brave. Here I am, the smartest person in the world, and I gave an entire sermon on the word (laughs) lezzy, which means who art. And I'm like fiery, and I'm like, God is not just Abana, he's (laughs) lezzy. And the people listening to it, God is not just our father, it's who art and if you don't know who art, then you're not a child of God, and who art? And how do the people respond? They're like, you know, I never heard that before. He's basically... It just proves, you can say whatever you want, just say it with confidence, and people are like, that's a good point, I never heard a sermon on it. That's hashtag sermon fail, okay? That's hashtag sermon fail. We all love a good failure story, and I wanna say we need it. We need to know, hey, I'm not the only one who loses my temper. I'm not the only one struggling with this bad habit. I'm not the only one who cannot start this good habit. I'm not the only one who says, curse words in in, 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 sermons. Like I'm not the only one who makes these mistakes. We all need to feel like we're not on an island. Like there are people out there, successful people, people who have gone before us who we admire, who we aspire to be like, who one day, at one point in time, they failed too. And what we're talking about in this series is how we are going, we are making a decision that our failures are not going to determine our life. We will not be characterized by our failures We will be characterized by our response to our failures. Because what we saw last week, and we'll see this every week, this is the theme of the series, is that God wants to work through your mistakes and shortcomings, not in spite of them. God does not expect you to be perfect. And God, see, we think we have this idea in our mind that God calls me to do this, and he wants me this, and if I fall short, he's like, ugh, again? How? Okay, fine. Fine, I'll be your father anyway. Fine, I'll bless you. Ugh, and we feel like he gets frustrated with it, and that could not be further from the truth. God knows that we are imperfect, and God has planned for our imperfections and our failures and our shortcomings. And in fact, what I want to say is sometimes God even programmed them inside of us. Our failures will not stop God from working in us. He will work, in sp- he will work through those failures. You see, the only one who expects you to be perfect is one person, and that's you. Take a survey of all the people around you. Take a survey of your spouse. Go ask your husband. Does he expect you to be a perfect wife? Go ask your wife. Does she expect you to be a perfect husband? Go ask your parents. They expect you to be perfect kids. Go ask your boss. Does he expect you to be perfect? Nobody expects you to be perfect. And I want to tell you that thinking that God expects you to be perfect is not only bad for you, it is sinful. You know, I read, a, I read an article the other day. I was talking about parenting. And it said something that shocked me. But it's true. It said that perfect parents create the same level of shame in their children as abusive ones. That perfect parents, parents who expect perfection, create the same level of shame in their children. It's equally as dangerous as an abusive parent. And I think that's true. And I think that's true with God as well. If you think God expects perfection, that's the same as God being an abusive father the way it creates shame inside of us. God does not expect us to be perfect. In fact, the reason that Jesus came to this earth is to fix us because we are not perfect. Jesus said this in Luke 5:31. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus said, I came, when Jesus came to this earth, he came with a doctor's jacket on. He came with the stethoscope. He came with the eye, the in your ear kind of a thing. He came with the white coat. He came as a doctor. And if we walk around and say, no, no, I'm perfect, no sickness here, no failure here, then why did he come to this earth? He said, I came to heal because I know that you need it. Last week we saw, for those who were here, we looked at the story of the prodigal son. And we saw that the prodigal son, the father in that story, loved him, not in spite of his mistake, wasn't frustrated with him because of his mistake, didn't get annoyed at him and say, okay, fine, just sit in the back of the home. No, 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 the father, nothing could be further from the truth. When that son came back and said, father, I have failed. That father said, get out the party equipment. Get out the decorations, get the robe, get the ring, get the fatted cap. We're celebrating. And we'd say, but he failed. And the father said, I know he failed. And you know what? I know you fail too. And your failure will never stop me from working in your life. I read a nice quote the other day. It said, the church is not a showroom for the saints, but an emergency room for the sinners. I love that. That's who we are. That's who we are in this church. If you're perfect, why you you don't belong here? There's nothing I can do for you if you're perfect. But if you say, this is not a showroom for the saints. This is an emergency room for sinners. I say, welcome. You're in the right place. Because that's who we are right here. It's a group of people who are in need of healing. Because we will, we will fail, but we will not let our failure to define us. The other great takeaway that I hope we take away from this series starting today and really moving forward these next four weeks. What I hope everybody realizes is that your failure isn't as unique as you think it is. We all tend to think that I messed up so bad in such a unique way, no one's ever messed up like this. Well, with all due respect to you, there have been people who are much greater failures than you, and people have walked this road before, and the devil would love to get us to think that nobody has ever messed up so bad. What we're gonna see over the course of the next four weeks is that when we fail, much like the boxer analogy that we saw in the beginning, failure kinda hits us always in the same way. And we're gonna look at four punches or four kind of, 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 weapons that failure hits us with. And you're going to see that you're not as unique as you think you are. Because when we look at the lives of the saints who have gone before us, when we look around and we share our own stories. We'll see that failure kind of comes at you with one and then two and then three and then four. And it's not as unique as you think it is. Each of the four punches we're going to see easy to hopefully remember because they each begin with a D faith hits or failure hits us with doubt with disinterest or apathy it hits us with discouragement and hits us ultimately with despair that's his knockout punch so we are going to start today by looking at the first of these punches that failure throws at us which is the first one which is doubt and we are going to look at a great hero of the bible named elijah and we're going to see how elijah struggled and how he was he was knocked down by doubt. And doubt was hitting him while he was down. And we're going to see how Elijah responded to his doubt. And hopefully, we'll see how we should respond to our doubt. Now, in order to understand the story of Elijah, all right, you have to bear with me on this one. We need to get the context of the story. So we're going to read a lot from the Bible right here. And we don't usually read this much. But really, it's just to get the context of it. Because if you don't understand the height which Elijah was at, you won't appreciate the failure which he found himself in. Okay? You have to really see that the fall from the victory to the defeat to, to kind of understand the whole story. So we are going to see, we're going to pick up the story in First chap- Kings, is verse, chapter 16, 17, 18, and 19. We're not going to read that whole passage, but kind of selected verses, and I'll kind of walk you through the story so hopefully you get this. Context of what's going on historically at the time. At the time, Israel... People of God, of whom Elijah is one of them, he's one of the prophets, are living at one of the worst periods historically. It's one of the low points in the history of the people of God where they had completely forsaken God and worshipped other false gods. And we'll see that right here in the time... Okay, in 1 Kings chapter 16, which talks about this time. It says, In the 38th year of King of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. This is the way they used to do timing, by the way. Don't, don't get confused by this. There's two kingdoms. There was Judah and Israel. So because they couldn't say in the year 2015, in June, whatever, they would say, In the 38th year of this guy, this guy started reigning. So they dated things by other events happening. Does that make sense? So, and they they didn't have, again, like a year calendar. So they want to say in the beginning of Ahab's uh, kingship or or his reign. So when was that? It was in the 38th year of this guy. Okay, so don't don't get confused by that. Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. So tell us more about this Ahab guy, because I heard his name before. Where was he on the list of kings of Israel, good or bad? Now, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And that's saying a lot, because all who were before him were wicked and evil. But the Bible says this guy was really bad news. And you find out why right now in this next verse. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Let me give you a little bit of of Bible uh, understanding right here. Many kings in the history of Israel, many kings, all of them bad for the most part. Of Israel, actually all of them were bad, but some less bad than others. We know that many of them were bad. This guy was especially bad. It says right there, he did evil more than those who were before him. And in addition, he wasn't the only evil one in the, in the king's palace. Who else was evil? It was Jezebel. All the kings that are listed in the Bible says this king did evil, this king did evil, this king did evil. There's only one wife mentioned of any of these evil kings. You know who she is? Jezebel. That saying, she's really bad. <laughs> and the next verse shows us why. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings who were before him. Why? Because all the other kings were good kings who strayed. Good kings who said we should worship God but maybe we'll dance a little bit with some of these other dance partners, some of these other gods. Ahab wasn't like that. Ahab was good. He married Jezebel, who was wicked. And they basically said, you know what? Get rid of God of Israel. Officially, the state religion is we worship Baal. Officially. All before that, it was like we worship God, but then we cheat on God. Now it's like we don't even want to have nothing to do with God. The true God. And in the house of the king, idols. The decree from the palace was you worship idols. This was the worst, worst, worst time period in the history of Israel. And in that worst time period where there was no worship of God, there was no priests of God. They got rid of all the priests who worshiped the true God. They killed them. And they said, you guys who worship Baal, who is the the idol, you guys are the real priests. In the middle of that, we hear this next verse in the next chapter, 1 Kings 17. And Elijah the Tishbite, of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years, except my word. I wanna pause this verse right here, and I want you to remember this phrase, before whom I stand. Just record that in your memory. We're gonna come back to that verse later. Ahab, wicked king, Jezebel, wicked queen. Elijah shows up on the scene, and what does Elijah say? Hi, how you doing? Nice to meet you. My name is Elijah. Hey, did you ever think that you're worshiping a dumb idol? Like, what is Elijah's introduction to this wicked king? He says, FYI, you worship the wrong God. I worship the right God. I stand in front of him. It is not going to rain on this land. I'm declaring a drought on this land. How do you think Ahab felt about that? At the beginning, Ahab and Jezebel said, who are you? Like a little funny little boy. Get out of here. And they said, you don't speak to the king like that. Somebody get him. But Elijah was able to fled, was able to flee away and he escaped. And they said, get this guy because he's disrespectful. But they couldn't believe that this no name guy, a Tishbite of the land of Gilead means of no namer, like from the middle of nowhere, comes to the king and says, it's not going to rain around here. Well, you know what? Lo and behold, fast forward three years, in chapter 18, three years later, and it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. Fast forward three years, and we discover Elijah back on the scene, and God says, now go back to him. What happened during those three-year period when Elijah said no rain, and this time right here, there was no rain. There was a severe famine. Can you imagine that? I'm the king. I'm the king of the universe as far as I'm concerned. I control everything. Some little schmuck comes to me, says, this is not going to rain around here. I say, get out of here, boy. And it done rained rain on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and then the first week and then the second week and then the first month and then the second month and the first year and then the second year. And it has now been, remember how much it rained last week? Like it rained like... Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, right? Something like that, not Saturday. I'm talking about these guys hadn't rained since 2012. 2012, they've been sitting there waiting for the rain. Elijah, at this point in time, is a wanted man. Because as far as the king knows, he did some voodoo stuff, some cursed stuff, and he messed us up. So we need to kill this guy to get our rain back. This guy hates Elijah. But Elijah... No problem. Elijah walks back in his office. And Elijah, at the command of God, goes to Ahab. And what he does, we'll kind of fast forward the story right here. He goes to Ahab and says, Ahab, I ain't scared of you. And I ain't scared of all your punk prophets and priests. And I would like to challenge them to a duel, a good old-fashioned duel. Here's what we're going to do. He says, we're going to go up to the top of this mountain called Mount Carmel. And it's going to be me against all of your priests and your prophets. We'll go in verse 19. It says that now therefore send and gather all israel to me on mount carmel the 450 prophets of baal and the 400 prophets of asherah who eat at jezebel's table he says get your 450 of these bad guy prophets and your 400 of these so how many is that on that side 850 i will stand on this side here's what we will do we'll go up to the top of the mountain we will set up altars You set up an altar for your God, I'll set up an altar for my God. You put a dead cow on your altar, I'll put a dead cow on my altar. You will pray to your God to make fire from heaven to consume it because you believe he's your God, and there's 850 of you guys. I will pray to my God, and we'll see which God answers. And I want an audience. I don't want to do this alone, because if I'm going to take down you 850 punks, I want people to see this, because there was no social media at the time, and you couldn't take pictures on yourself. So they gathered them up there together. 850 on one side, one on the other side. And what happens? Ahab, I'm sorry, Elijah says, 850, y'all go first. Verse 25. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first. For you are many and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which, they, which was given them and they prepared it and they called on the name of Baal from morning till even, even till noon, saying, "Oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. There was no voice. Why was there no voice? Because there's no God. Because you worship a dumb statue. You worship something which isn't real. Imagine, here they are, 850, and Oh, Baal, and all this kind of stuff. And what happens when they make that where comes the fire now? Now. And what did you hear? Of course, we weren't there, but in my mind, I picture, you know the sound of crickets? Cricket, cricket. That's what happened right there. Just, burp, burp. and I bet you could have heard a pin drop. So what they did, they started leaping around the altar, which they had made. And, I, and Elijah, this might be like one of my favorite parts in all the Bible. Look what Elijah, look at verse here, 27. So it was at noon. Elijah, watch Elijah, this is my man. Elijah mocked them. Picture, picture them jumping around like crazy, and Elijah just kind of by the tree over here in the corner. Elijah mocked them, said, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or maybe he's busy, or maybe he's on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awaking. He's saying, no, 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 don't worry. I'm sure he's up there and like trying to like hold back the laughter. And even one of them that he says, he says he is busy. The, uh, another other translation of the Bible translated a little bit differently. Says maybe he's attending to his needs. You know what that means? Like maybe he's just in the bathroom. Just go ahead, say it a little bit louder. Just give him a couple minutes. I'm sure he'll be right there. And he's like trying to hold back the laughter because he knows they're not praying to a real God. They're praying to statues. And then... Watch what happens next. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances, until the blood gushed out of them. Again, Elijah laughing inside. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. They started in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning. They went kept going till evening. It's now five o'clock P.M. They've been from eight in the morning till five PM. And Elijah's finally like, Are you done? You screamed? you shouted, you cut yourselves, you waited for him to finish the bathroom, maybe it might have been number one, number two, like, okay, now clearly he's not coming. Now watch Elijah, when Elijah steps up to the plate. Watch the confidence that he has in God. Verse 32, then with the stones he built, he being Elijah, built an altar in the name of the Lord, the true Lord, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two seas of seed. So, He built the altar, and then he built like a trench around it. Why would he build a trench around it? We'll see. And he put wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, what's the confidence and his faith in God, the boldness, and I want to say cockiness of Elijah? Fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Why would he say that? He said, give me four big pots of water and pour it on the wood. Why? To make it what? make it harder. He said, I know my God will come through. Man, a little water, like y'all were dancing around like fools. I'm telling you, we're going to set this on fire. But before we do, fill it with water. Then he goes on. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and he filled also the trench with water. Do you hear what he did? He said, okay, y'all suckers, nothing happened. Now watch what the real God does. So I'm going to bring fire from heaven. Oh, no, but oh, wait. Put some water on it. He said, okay, now I'm bring fire. Oh, no, wait. One more time, bring some water on it. Okay, now I'm going to show you how it's done. Oh, no, just wait one more time just for my sake. Fill that bad boy up with so much water so that no fire could ever exist right there. See his confidence in God? Like, see how this man believes in God? Like, See how he didn't doubt for one second? And what happens? Y'all know the story. And it came to pass. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant. I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Do y'all sense any doubt, any hesitation in his voice? Not, not, even, not even a sliver of it then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. I love that expression. It didn't just consume it. It licked up the water as if just to say like, just in case you missed it, I take care of that water for you too. like, you made a mess here. I clean up that mess for you too. Now, when they all saw, now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They cheered. The crowd went wild is basically what that says. And then the final verse, verse 40. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. That's about as great a victory as you will find in the Bible. Not only did he prove them as suckers, not only did he bring fire from heaven on top of the water covered sacrifice. Then he said, kill them as well. And 850 were slain. And one person walked away victorious. Anybody reach this height? Anybody? Anybody brought brought fire from heaven? Anybody ever wanna fight against 850 other people? Anybody ever wanna fight against eight other people? Anybody ever done anything this bold? This faith-filled, anyone ever seen God in such, like, if there's anybody in the universe, right? If there's anybody in the universe who will never doubt God, it's Elijah. If there's anybody in the universe who would never struggle with faith, it's Elijah. Like, if there's anybody who would never, ever, ever feel despair or hopeless or feel down. like, if there's anybody, it's Elijah, right? There's a verse in the book of James, I believe it's on your handout. James said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And the scripture saying it in a positive way, okay, saying that he was just an ordinary man, but he prayed earnestly, and God shut the heavens from rain, and then he prayed again, and God brought rain. So it's saying it in that positive way, but I'm taking it also in a negative way, that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he falls too. And even Elijah, Elijah, like Elijah, even Elijah can have weak moments. It couldn't be that someone like this could ever be weak. But we will see that all of us, all of us are weak at times. And no one is exempt from doubt. And no one is exempt from losing faith. Like we've all been in a situation. You know it and I know it. Like Elijah's not the only one that God has worked miraculously in his life, right? Is there anyone here? who if I really pressed you, if I really pressed you, you'd be able to tell me how God did something in your life and how you know God worked in your life and you know God loves you. And God worked, I don't want to say miraculously because we kind of throw that word around too easily, but you know God has worked in your life. There isn't a person in this room that God hasn't worked in their life, but there also isn't a person in this room that hasn't struggled to doubt that at times. There isn't a person in this room who hasn't, despite the high, felt what it's like to be low. And Elijah shows us, that can be me too. Next chapter. So this is chapter 18, verse 40. Victory. Chapter 19, what happens next? Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Ahab now goes home to Jezebel, and Ahab was kind of whipped. So Ahab kind of went to Jezebel and kind of cried to her and said, Elijah did this, and Elijah did this, and Elijah killed the prophets, and he's a bad guy. And Jezebel, she's not having any of that stuff. Watch what happens here. Ahab told Jezebel all Elijah had done, how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Saying, Elijah did that, well, watch what I'm going to do to him. He's going to end up like them, and I swear my life on it. You're Elijah. You just took down 850 prophets. What happens when this queen threatens you? Elijah's not going to be scared by this, right? Like, this is Elijah. This fire from, like, all of us, the one thing that we wish, like, that's our dream. Fire from heaven. Like, it wouldn't, like, that's what we all want, right? Like, boss said this, fire from heaven. Like, Elijah had that capability. Like, Elijah would never in a million years be scared of a lady (laughs) Sorry, forgive me, ladies. I don't mean it in a bad way, but she's a lady. He just took down 800. This shows you the power of one lady versus 850 men, okay? <laughs> Watch what happens in this next verse. And when he saw that, and when he saw that, again, we'll come back to that word, saw that. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life what are you kidding me no way 850 people did not scare elijah one jezebel one word from her and he ran for his life keeps going gets worse it actually gets worse where'd he go he went to beersheba beersheba is the farthest away city like he went to the farthest away city and he went there which belongs to judah and he left his servant there But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So he went to the furthest city and went as far as he could go in that one day. So he ran for his life and he didn't stop running until he fell from exhaustion. And he said, I can't even believe about to say these words. And he prayed that he might die. And said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. how somebody help me out here like how how chapter 18 and then chapter 19 chapter 18 850 take them down chapter 19 one lady cowered and feared how the easy thing to say the easy thing to say is he lost faith he was weak elijah should have been stronger in faith that's very nice that's what we teach the kids. But you and I know the truth. That no matter how strong you are in faith, it's just a matter of time. Before failure lines you up and you're doing a good job of fighting and then it sneaks one in. And that first shot, that's doubt. And Elijah got hit by doubt. Elijah got hit by some of the doubts that you and I may have felt. They go something like this. God, I thought you were on my side. God, I thought you were on my side. I thought you were protecting me. I thought you were taking care of me. Lord, I did what you asked me to do, and this is the reward I get from it? We've been there before, right? We've been there before. God works. God promises. We love God. And then we lose our job. And all of a sudden, doubt sneaks in there. And then all of a sudden, she wants to be just friends again. And then we go to the doctor and he says, sorry, you're not pregnant again. We've all been there. We've all been there. We know what it's like to doubt God. We know what it's like to get frustrated and say, why God? Like, what did I not do right? What did I not do that you would want? me? Like, is this the reward God that you give me? And thanks be to God that the scripture doesn't hide failure from us. Thanks be to God, because we would be depressed people if all we did is have stories of success. Thanks be to God that it shows that somebody like Elijah can struggle with those same thoughts and doubts that me and you struggle with. Because we all know what it's like to have been there. Now, I want it, we're going to get to how he handles it. But I, want it, I don't want it past this opportunity without seeing what caused doubt, what caused him to be susceptible to doubt. What happened in Elijah's game in his strategy, what happened when he put it like, where did his guard go down and doubt snuck in there? Because while true, all of us will struggle with doubt. There are certain things that we can study and realize that make doubt much more likely to knock us down and less likely. So with Elijah, we're gonna see four factors that led to failure. We'll go through these kind of quickly because just for the sake of time. Four factors that contributed to Elijah falling into doubt and getting knocked down. And the first one is he was alone, and I cannot overemphasize this enough, he was alone, because anytime time that doubt is going to knock you down, nine out of 10 times, I'm telling you, I'm telling, you come to me and say, Father Anthony, and I'm doubting, and I'm struggling, and I always ask you the same thing. I always ask you the same thing. I ask you, who are you hanging out with? Who are you spending time with? And nine out of 10 times, your answer is, no, 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 I just need a break. You need a break? No, no I just need a break that break is going to break you because that break is the worst thing possible. Go watch what I'm going back to this verse here. Look here, look in that first verse, see what happened to Elijah. When he saw that he arose and ran for his life, went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. And he left his servant there. Once he left his servant there, the devil said, failure said, I got you now because once you are alone, you are vulnerable And we all know, you know like I know, that we thank God there have been times in our lives that we have been walking in a dumb route. And God has sent somebody who kicked me in the behind when I needed that kick in the behind. The scripture says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 that two are better than one. Because if one falls by himself, he has nobody to pick him up. But two, they help each other up. And says, woe to him who is alone when he falls. And we believe in that very strongly here at this church. That's why we're always pushing things called life groups. That's why we're pushing things called leisure groups. That's why we're pushing things called community. Because I believe, and I hope you believe it too, because I promise you it's true, that when you are by yourself, you are never more susceptible and vulnerable to failure beating you down. If Elijah had his servant there, maybe his servant would have said, Elijah, remember yesterday? Fire? water, 850. Remember, we took those down. Elijah said, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. Thanks. I appreciate that. Like we all need somebody to say, hey, remember when God worked? Hey, remember what God did when you were in college? Hey, remember how God spoke to you after that incident happened? Remember how God worked? We all need somebody like that. And we are alone. Man, you are setting yourself up for for a failure. You are setting yourself up and the key here with this alone thing, okay, then I'll move on, but I just I believe in this so strongly. The key is, today is a sunny day. The best time to prepare for the rain is during the sunny days. So don't say, well, I'm okay now, I don't need anybody. Hey, that's great that you're okay, but tomorrow you may not be okay. So while it's today, that you make sure that you surround yourself by a positive community so that when you need it, it's there. Because when you get that call from the hospital, or when you get that bad news, that is not the time to begin establishing relationships. It doesn't work that way. You need to make sure that you have a support network that you can run to. He was alone. Number two, he was coming off a great victory. He was coming off a spiritual high. Now you say, hey, wait a minute. That should mean, you know, he's in perfect position, but not true, and I'll tell you why. You know why? Because we're all liars, You're a liar and I'm a liar. And I'll tell you how you lie. When something like this happens, Elijah, fire, killed, bad guy's down, I'm victorious. What do we all say? Someone will say, hey, good job, Elijah. What do we all say? We've been trained since we were young to say the right words. What do we say? It was all God. It was all God. Thank God it was all God, not me. We say that, we don't mean that. You know what we mean? We say it's all God. We say it was all God. But you don't want to know why God did it? Because I'm a good person. God did it because I believed in him. God did it because I served him. God did it because I'm a good guy. You're a bad guy. That's why God doesn't work through you. And a little piece of us, even though we don't say it with our mouth, we believe it with our heart. We deserve this. We deserve it. God did something good. It's because I'm good. I never climbed a mountain, but those who do climb mountains will tell you that the hard part isn't necessarily reaching the top. The hard part is coming down. I shouldn't say the hard part. The most dangerous part is the way down, not the way up. And the same is true spiritually. If I can convince you that you did something great, and it's kind of because you're a good person, well, then what happens when something bad happens? Well, it must be because you're a bad person. Or it must be because God doesn't love you. Like, God did this because he loves you. What if God doesn't do this? That means he doesn't love you. Whenever you attribute good things to yourself, you are setting yourself up for failure. Whenever you come off that spiritual high, you are never in a more dangerous and vulnerable position. as when you say, I reached the mountaintop, it's gonna be for sure. How many times have we said this? God did this, I'll never doubt him again. Smooth sailing from here on out because now I've seen the mountaintop, I'll never struggle with that again. Good luck. Number three. He was comparing. I don't know if you remember that verse What he said, I've become no better than my fathers. That's what Elijah said. Anytime we start to look, you know what he's saying when I become no better than my fathers? He's saying, hey, wait a minute, God. Like, uh, no offense. I'm better than her. Why are she and I in the same, like this happened to her, but she's bad, but I'm good. Why you allow her and not me? Why this guy? Why that girl? Why them? Like, they're all happy. Jezebel's leaving them alone. Like, what did I do? And he started look this way. And once you start to look at this way and say, well, they have it this way and I have it this way, you end up setting yourself up for failure. Comparing yourself to others will never, ever ever yield anything positive it can only yield negative as soon as you look around negative is the only thing that can happen because one of two things are gonna happen either i'm better than him or i'm worse than him and if i'm better than him i'm proud and if i'm worse than him i'm despair those are the only two options once you start to look around and say well so and so has this but i don't have this you've lost either you're gonna feel proud or you're gonna feel despair well so and so's relationship is better than mine well so and so's kids listen to them but mine don't well, so and so, everyone wants to marry her. And no one wants to marry me. Once you start look around, and you start comparing, you're done, because nothing good can come of it. He was alone. He's coming off victory. He was comparing, and then the most significant of them all. And don't brush over this one, men. He was tired. And he was hungry. Men, am I preaching the truth here or not? We are physical beings, and you cannot underestimate, underappreciate the value of our physical state on our emotional and our spiritual state. That's why, ladies, the number one time, I'm sorry to say this, the number one time that that fights happen in marriage is when? Right before dinner. (laughs) Not the best time to bring up stuff. Not the best time. Because we men, especially men, like y'all ladies, y'all are better than us. Y'all have something called self-control. We don't. We don't. When we're tired, when we're hungry, like our brain is somehow in this region, okay? We can't think straight and we can't do anything. And we know that that's how Elijah was right now. He was exhausted. It had been a long day and he was hungry. And we'll see that. It'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay, it'll show you why I say he was tired and he was hungry, okay? Actually, we'll go to that verse right now okay how do we know he was tired and hungry because the first thing that God does when God answers him says this it says then as he lay and slept under a broom tree suddenly an angel touched him and said to him arise and eat then he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals in a jar of water so he ate and drank and lay down again ladies wives take note of this okay what happened when the man was grumpy what did God do for him baked him a cake an angel came and baked him a cake okay I'm not implying anything. An angel greeted him at the door and baked him a cake. And then what did the angel say? Then the angel came back the second time and touched him. So the angel basically said, go back and take another nap. Arise and eat again because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Angel came, baked him a cake, said take a nap. And apparently the cake was so good, he didn't eat for another 40 days. Here's what I want to say to you. I'm going to go back to this list, okay? I'm going to come back. These four factors. I remember a time in my life where I experienced all four of these factors. And I remember it very vividly. What year it was, I couldn't tell you, but I'm going to go back to say, I'm going to throw out there 2010, 2009, somewhere in that time period. I've been a priest probably for eight, nine years, something like that. And I remember very vividly, it was a Sunday evening, Right about this time of year, because I remember that was daylight till late. And I was like, I'm not trying to toot my own arm, I'm being honest. I'm a hard worker. And I remember this day in particular, like Sundays, Sundays for me, now not so much, okay, but especially back in those days when I, when I was over at St. Mark's and we had... Two lit- we had three liturgies every Sunday, and giving communion all of them, and I remember I'm preaching, we had a six o'clock liturgy, and i preached sermon that, and I preached sermon in the nine o'clock one, and then I gave the, the message after that, and light and life, and then I, and I took confessions after that, and then I had appointments, and then I remember, I was out all day till about eight o'clock at night, I'm talking about from 5 30 in the morning to eight o'clock at night, and I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing, and I'm, again, I'm not tooting my own horn, but I'm working hard, and I'm not doing, I'm not making money off this stuff. I'm giving myself as much as I can. I'm blood, I'm sweat, I'm hungry. I ain't get but one meal from five o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock at night, but one meal, one bathroom break, like I mean, it was just one of those days. And I remember on my way home that night after a long, long, long day, I was all for these. I was alone, I was driving home by myself. I was coming off a great day. One of those days where, again, just let you into the mind of a priest, I'm like, you know what? MVP today. Like, I'm the MVP of the day. (laughs) I declared myself the MVP, the most valuable priest that day, okay? (laughs) Self-appointed, but I I declared myself, okay? (laughs) I was comparing. I was looking at it, and not in a negative way, but in a, like, you know what? Like, I'm praising myself. Like, you know what? Like, I'm good. I I mean, I, I, I give, like, I'm good. I would never say that, but we say that to ourselves. And for sure, I was tired and hungry. And I remember driving home and the phone rang, answer the call, and there was someone, someone. And they gave me a complaint. A, hey, we need, and I won't say what it was. And it was something that I needed to do. And my response was, that's it, I quit. I'm done, that's it take the black robe and i want to throw it out the window. That's it, I quit, I'm done. Because I'm killing myself, I'm killing myself. And I'm doing everything right. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. And like I said, I'm not getting any younger from this. I ain't gaining more hair from this. It's not like I'm building up some great 401k So like, I ain't doing this for myself and this, and I'm not angry at the person, I'm angry at God. Because God, I do everything for you and this is the result that I get. And this is the thanks that I get. And this is the appreciation that I get. I'm done, I quit. And I cannot tell you how many times I quit the priesthood on a Sunday (laughs) and got rehired on Monday morning. (laughs) Because we've all been there. We've all been there. When we're alone, when we're coming off a victory, when we're praising ourselves, and when we just need a nap and a sandwich. Thanks be to God that God doesn't judge us for our weaknesses. Thanks be to God he doesn't pull. Like, thanks be to God that he doesn't listen. I know this sounds bad. Thanks be to God that he doesn't listen to every prayer, especially the stupid ones we say. Forgive me. We say stupid prayers all the time. My, I quit, God, I can't. Take it, God, take this from me. That's a stupid prayer. Elijah's, God, take my life from me. Okay, Elijah, okay, yeah. okay. Here, here, stick this in your mouth. Okay, Elijah. Thanks be to God that he doesn't listen to the stupid prayers that we say and he doesn't treat us the way we treat him. What he does instead, okay? Elijah says that he gets a sandwich, he goes up to mountain of God. And there, verse nine, he went into a cave and he spent the night in that place. And behold, look, God didn't yell at him. God didn't yell at him and say, what's wrong with you, Elijah? God says, okay, come to this cave. The word of the Lord came to him and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Like just knock, knock, just out of curiosity. Like I sent you to Ahab. Here you are. What happened? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. What is he doing here? Yeah, I catch that what he said. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, implying that who is not very zealous for them is God. He's saying, like, God, I'm carrying you. Like, God, I'm doing my job and your job. Because in case you haven't noticed it, your children have forsaken you, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I'm carrying this by myself. Who's his focus on? His focus is 100% on himself. And we learned here now is the key. That was all the setup. Here's the key. This is the takeaway for today. Don't miss this point. The most important point, I'm going to say it in three different ways. Don't miss this point. Doubt comes from taking my eyes off of God and looking to myself and my circumstances. Doubt comes when I take my eyes off of God and I put my eyes on myself or my circumstances. I stop looking up and I start looking around. Remember before when I told you on the mountain, when he was in front of those 850, you remember what he said? Remember what he said? He said, the Lord God of hosts before whom I stand. He's saying right now, I don't see you all. I see the Lord God. That's who I'm standing. I ain't standing in front of some prophets. I'm standing in front of God. And that's all he saw. And because he saw God, the man who has his eyes on God, 850 prophets, Boom, take him down. The man whose eyes are off God, one little old lady. And he run away like a little girl. <laughs> scared for his life, as far away as ways he could go. When he was on the mountain, he saw God. When he was here, he saw Jezebel. When he was on the mountain, he saw the God of the universe. He saw the God over all kings. He saw the God of all water and all everything. On this earth, all he saw was Jezebel and her threats. Which of those two characterizes you? If I listened to your prayers, if I could sneak into your prayer room, what would I hear? A lot of talk about how big your God is or about how big your problems are. If I could, okay, forget about prayer because we know how to say the right, we've been trained in how to say the right prayers. I want to slither into your heart. I want to slither into your mind, and I want to see what's running through there. My God is so big, or God, my problems are so big. We'll do a little example right now. Okay, we're gonna do a little visual. Everyone's gonna take part with me right here. Take your hand, stick it in front of your face like this. Okay, stick your hand in front of your face and look at your hand. Look at right in the palm of your hand. You see the palm of your hand, right? You see them and you can see, look up a little bit, see all four, all five of them fingers, you look up and you see them. Now don't move your head at all, don't move your hand. Now what I want you to do with everything exactly as is, change your focus and look at me. Look at me, can you see me? Can you see me now? Can you see me? Can you see, answer. You can see me. Now switch your focus back to your hand. Don't move, focus back to hand. See your hand, can you see me? Focus on your hand, can you see me? Answer, no. Is anything changing between when I focus on you, me, me, or my hand? Is anything changing? Is anything changing? Put your hands down. Your hand is your circumstances. Your God is behind your circumstances. It's up to you. Some people choose to live their life looking like this, cross-eyed at their circumstances. And they walk around, they bump into stuff all the time because they cross-eyed. Now, some people... With their circumstances, even with double circumstances. They're going like this, and they find a little nook or cranny to see God. And then the circumstances come here, and they sneak right here to see God. And then this close up, and they do like this. Anything to see God. Because as much as you are focused on your circumstances, as much as you will never see God. And as much as you are focused on your God, you will never see your circumstances. It's up to you. Say it another way. The only difference between a hero and a coward is where they focus their eyes. The only difference. Top of the mountain, Elijah bottom of the barrel, Elijah, same person, only difference is where their eyes are focused. Personal, me, when my eyes are focused on myself, I can't do this job. Focused on myself, give a sermon in front of these people, I can't do it. I'm not smart enough. I am not spiritual enough. Like I don't have that much to contribute. Really? I don't. Lead a church? No, I definitely can't do that. How, what do I know about leading the church? Help advise people on what decisions. Like, I can't do these things by myself. If my focus is on myself, my shortcomings, my weaknesses, I can't do it. If my focus is on God, okay, God, let's do it. If I see God, man, I'm telling you, I hope this is way for you too. This way. For, if, I see, if, if I see God, man, I'll run through a brick wall if I see God. But if I don't see God, you bring a little sheet of paper, which of those two characterizes your life next verse story wraps up here then he said god said you see how god gets his focus gets his eyes back on him then he said go out stand on the mountain between before the lord and behold the lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rock in pieces before the lord but the lord was not in the wind And after the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. What I want to say about this is this. God said to Elijah, Elijah, I understand. You fell. That's all right. Take a cake. Take a nap. Come back to me. We need to fix your eyes. I need you to see me. So let's go up the top of this mountain. And here's a rumbling earthquake. Okay, God, I see you. Nope, not there. Here's a wind. Okay, God, I see. Nope, not there. Here's a fire. There I see. Nope, not there. Where are you, God? And it's still small voice. In other words, saying what? Saying when you have the great victory, I'm with you. And when you're at the bottom of the barrel, you got nothing. I'm still with you. But can you see me? Like God saying, Elijah, I work in fire. I work in silence. Equally the same. I said this last week and I continue to say it. What will define your character in life is not how you handle success, but how you handle failure. What will define your spiritual life, your life of faith, is not how you handle the mountaintop, but how you handle the valley which comes after that. And that's what God is teaching Elijah right here, is that when we see God, when we see God, and we focus on God, like last week was all about your mind, was about your identity, that who am I? I'm a child of God. My mind, today is not mine. today is eyes. Today, I want to focus on my eyes, and I want to make sure that my eyes focus on God and put God in front of me. And if that means memorize a verse, memorize a verse. That means them cute little pictures, okay, with Jesus, whatever it takes, you find a way to remind yourself that God, the Lord God of hosts, he's in front of me at all times. I'll bring you again. I told you all last week, my greatest struggle in this series is which verse to tell you guys to memorize or to hold with you, because there's just so many good ones. The one I chose for this one, I'm sorry. Out of order, we'll come back to that one. Psalm 121, this is the verse for this one. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? This is an easy one to memorize too. It's, somehow it's very smooth and flowing. I think they made a song out of it. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over is he who watches over you will not slumber indeed he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep the lord watches over you the lord is your shade at your right hand the sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night the lord will keep you from all harm he will watch over your life the lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore that's the whole psalm reason I put it all up there, that's one to memorize. That's one to keep in your little pocket. Okay, if you have pockets here, I have pockets here. But wherever you have pockets, that's a good one to keep in your pocket. Okay, that's a good one that you keep in front of you at all times. I will lift my eyes. Because when doubt hits you, you counter by looking up. That's your homework assignment for the week. It is very simple. It is to look up no matter what the circumstance is. The doctor calls you. He gives you that bad news. You look up you got problems in your home, and they cannot be solved by anything on this earth. You look up. You go to work, and you come back, and you say, I don't know how I could take one more day there. You look up. No matter what the circumstance is, you look up. You lift your eyes up. Here are the circumstances. You look up. And when the circumstances, you just keep on looking up higher and higher. You look up. Because when you look up, you will see the God who is above all circumstances. And your doubt cannot handle that counterpunch right there. Last thing, I'll leave you all with this. You look at your circumstances, you'll be distressed. You look at yourself, you'll be depressed. You look at Jesus, you'll be at rest. My challenge for you is to look up in any circumstance that life throws at you. And I promise you, when you look up, you will see some great stuff up there. Elijah saw it. God didn't judge him. God didn't lightning bolt him. God didn't preach at him. God said, Elijah, look up. And that's what he's telling us all here today as well. Let's stand together for a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you for this encouraging message that you gave to us, that we are not alone when we fail. And we're not the only ones who have doubted you, not the only ones who have struggled. Thank you, Lord, that you don't hide the failures of your saints, that you reveal unto us to pick us up. Lord, teach us to look up in every circumstance in life. Teach us to look up when we're doubting and when we're struggling and we can't seem to see any light at the end of the tunnel. Give us a stop looking forward, stop looking around and start looking up and to lift our eyes like King David said, Lift our eyes up to the mountains to see where does our help come from. Our help comes from you, Lord, the maker of heaven and earth and everything that exists therein. I pray, Lord, for everyone who's struggling and who's feeling down, that you would lift their eyes up when they don't have the strength and the courage to do so, that you would pick them up and lift them up. They may see your goodness and your glory in their life. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the prayers of all your saints. Hear us, Lord, as we pray thankfully.